honestly, people who where something amazing happens to them and they can't tell the story, those people should die. <laughs> They are the bane of my existence. Sorry. And that's based on having spent thousands of hours of your life trying to get them to tell their story? That's based on me just trying to amuse you by saying these extreme <laughs> things that I don't believe okay. at all. <laughs> okay. So let's start at the beginning, yeah? Yeah. And that's how we started our conversation this summer with the irreverent Ira Glass, who, of course, is the legendary creator and host of This American Life. It was an amazing experience. We interviewed him in honor of this, our 50th episode of On Assignment. That's 5-0, if you can believe it. And it's also the start of our 10th season of this podcast. Yes, indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here at Columbia Journalism School. And I'm here with my colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. And we're here to bring you conversations with some of the illustrious and influential journalists who win awards and who come up to the journalism school to talk to us and our students. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Yes, usually our guests come to us up here at the J School, but in this case, we went to him and it was a thrill, if not just a little cramped, to do the interview in a recording studio at his This American Life office. Which isn't to say that Ira doesn't come up to Columbia on a pretty regular basis. He and his talented staff have won multiple DuPont Columbia Awards over the years. And a few years ago, he actually got another honor. Uh, He was given the Columbia Journalism Award by our faculty at the J School and spoke to students at commencement. As you can imagine, it was a thoroughly stirring, very, very inspiring and, of course, funny speech. And you're going to hear bits of it in this podcast mixed in with the interview itself. And you're also going to learn what Ira listens to every morning, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, We thought Ira was the perfect choice as a multiple DuPont winner and a pioneer of podcasting, the booming, innovative side of the profession these days, to kick off this new season and again to mark our 50th episode. That and this cake that I'm about to slice. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I didn't get any cake. (laughs) Anyway, without further ado, this is an edited conversation with This American Life's Ira Glass, which will kick off with a taste of his commencement speech. Thank you, Dean, faculty, parents, my new colleagues. Look at you. Welcome to the next phase of your life, new colleagues. It's going to be amazing. There's a war in this country over facts and truth. It's not clear how it's gonna play out. You're going to the front lines. I know those are words every parent wants to hear. You are, in a sense, sort of the godfather of this golden podcasting era that we're in, right? I mean, many people attribute or credit you with launching thousands of programs and podcasts. And, and I think it's factually inaccurate. Like, I will say, like, there's a very strong counterstrain in podcasting among the most popular podcasts. I mean, when you look at the ones that get millions of downloads, which is all the people who heard Howard Stern, um, who's such a wonderful interviewer. And, like, that show was so, like, iconically genre-creating. Like, there's a, there's a whole, like, world of people doing, like, really great podcasts that people love that are totally built on very different principles. Right, but those are interview shows as opposed to, they're not as much documentary. They're not, no, no, no. I feel like when it comes to like the form of documentary and all the true crime stuff and the knockoffs, like all that has come from like This American Life and Serial, for sure. And we we created a genre that has been widely 
imitated. And can I say, by lots of people improved, like Radiolab, a much better producer than ours. <laughs> God knows, you know? But I guess I wonder, 24 years in, I mean, I'm curious to talk a little bit about these times that we're in, which you addressed in your remarks to the graduating class. But it's different. It's a little, the atmosphere is different for this kind of work in 2019 than it was in 2009. Or, or is it? I mean, is there a different sense of urgency from a journalistic perspective? Yes, of course. So like, we're living in an era where journalists like us are being labeled enemies of the people and where um, there's an entire non-fact-based counter-narrative being pushed at all times by right-wing media and by the president of the United States. I mean, I feel like the part of me that's a straight reporter feels like a little like weird saying that, but but, it, but about the president of the United States, but it's it's you know documentable proof, but documentable like he says a lot of things that aren't true, and so you know obviously politicians always did, but it's just at a very new level. And then the fact that that uh, that anything that happens gets there are basically two powerful narratives going forward: the fact-based narrative that those of us in the mainstream media are doing, and then the non-fact-based narrative that it's being done by the right-wing media um, and, you know, by the president and his allies, like, it just is a very different information environment. Um, yeah, of course. And, and, and an upsetting one. I'm alarmed at the amount of non-factual material that's out there and how gleefully it is generated and how exciting it is to read and pass around. And I know everybody in this room is very familiar with all this, but I just want to say I'm disturbed. Does that influence the kind of themes that you guys take up? Or how does that, how does that impact the work inside here? Well, it's interesting. When President Trump got elected, like we, like I really thought, like, do we need to rethink things in a, in a fundamental way? And um, and in fact, what what it's what it's turned out to be is it's the same as it always was. I mean, it, it, like like we'll, we want to take on the issues that are in the news because we're interested in them. But finding an angle in where you can do narrative um, is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was a challenge before and it's a challenge now. And, and it's, it feels very much like the same process and the same challenge. Um, you know, like what, what can we do about immigration that everyone else has not already done that will add something to people's understanding? And that was one of our winners this year, actually, Our Town. Yeah, and, and Our Town really came out of like a saying, like what can we do that would make a contribution? And, 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 the, and the premise of what we did was, you know, we hear these arguments over and over and like, you know, the right says immigration does this, the left says immigration does this. Let's just go to a place where it happened and just see who's right. And then we found a town and, and partly we found that town because of Jeff Sessions, who had been the leader of anti-immigration policy in the country before the president came on the scene so forcefully. Why does he believe what he believes? And he talked about seeing, you know, chicken plants coming into these towns and we're just like, great, let's find, let's find a, a town that got where the chicken plants were... Uh, undocumented people came in and took over their jobs. Let's find the town where it happened the most. And this was one of the two or three towns in Alabama. We're great, great. Let's go to that one. That seems to be what he's talking about. And then we just tried to document what happened when a town, a town went from being nearly all white to being between a fourth and a third, depending on which year, like undocu uh, mostly undocumented people. We were just listening to parts of it. I mean, it's interesting how everyone attributed these crime statistics to the new, new or more recent arrivals to the town, when in fact it was there was a lot more to that part of the story, right? Right, right. 
But I talked to John Siggers, who's the commander of the Drug Enforcement Unit for the County Albertville's in Marshall County, and was an Albertville police officer from 1997 to 2007, right in the middle of the period that we're talking about. And I asked him about all that extra crime. Are most of the drug arrests Latinos? No. No, absolutely not. Um, most of the mass possession cases are, I would say, 90-something percent uh, Caucasian. And what about the property crime cases in town? That's, that would be Caucasian. The thing about these stories that win awards from DuPont is that they are a perfect or wonderful marriage of storytelling and journalism, which is a really hard thing to do. Because um, we talk about three main qualifications for DuPonts, which typically are there's a public service component, there's original reporting, and there's a strong narrative or story. Yeah. So how... I mean, that, that's hard to do, right? This is something that journalists struggle with all the time, where you, you end up writing about an issue and not about, you know, uh, there's no story, it's an issue. But yes. you should be writing a story instead of an issue. Or you have a great tale, but it doesn't really go beyond that. Yeah. There's no, there's yeah. no right. greater An incredible story. yarn, but there's no information yeah. <laughs> in the yarn. Um, so how do, you, how do you balance those things here? You know, like This American Life and then the shows which have spun off from us, like Serial and S-Town and the other podcasts that we're developing. Like the premise is that it's going to be narrative. That's just the thing that was different about us in the beginning is that we were going to very rigorously do narrative. And and in the most old-fashioned sense of there would be a story with a character or characters, there would be a plot, the plot would unfold, there'd be surprising turns to the plot, it would drive at ideas, but... Honestly, the ideas could be public service ideas, but they really could just be like something that somebody learns from a particular experience in their life. Like it just has to lead to some thought. And so we don't pick up an issue unless we can find narrative, you know. So it's important to have narrative. It's your mission. How important is it for the narrative to be about something? Like, for example, the Zoe Chase story that won a DuPont a couple of years ago that was, who's you know, Will I know anyone at this party? Yeah. Which took on politics and immigration, and it's an important issue, found a story. The reason Somalis came to St. Cloud is because there was civil war and famine in Somalia 25 years ago, which forced people into refugee camps, mostly in Kenya. The U.S. government contracts with different nonprofits that specialize in refugee resettlement. One of those is based in St. Paul, with an office in St. Cloud. And so a lot of the refugees end up in towns and cities in Minnesota after years spent in a camp. The Aces Bar Town Hall back in 2015 felt like a dress rehearsal of the anti-immigration feelings that fueled the Trump campaign. They were calling for the Muslim ban before he was. I guess it's like a chicken and an egg question. I mean, are you concerned about doing this, the issues and finding stories to tell them, or is it just... Well, the thing in our format is that we don't have to do a story with, about a bigger issue. Some of my favorite stories we do, like like there's no there's no bigger social meaning to it. You know, Kurt Brownell, or, you know, an interview that I did years ago where he and his girlfriend, who they're going to get married, but they're like, before we get married, we've been together since we were teenagers, and I haven't really slept with that many people. And so let's just have a room springer where we take a break for a month and we just sleep with as many people as we can, and then we'll get back together and get married. And then mayhem ensues. Like, it's really like the plot of a Judd Apatow film. And I feel like there's no, you know, there's no redeeming social merit in that story other than it's really fascinating and 
and it documents people alive in this moment and just like that's it. it we're a documentary show you know and we're not going to apply to the duponts with that like right. it's not going to win um but 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 a story like that is pleasing and i think that um and it and it just documents something about being in love and being in a relationship and, and with an amazing plot and many funny moments and like it's applying the tools of journalism to a story so small and personal that that journalists traditionally would not have touched it but it's, it's within our mission so you don't have to have a bigger issue to your stories but do you have any sense of well this is a mix we want to have or we have some sense of wanting to address the big issues of the day um, we we definitely do. I mean, it, it's not very well thought out, is the truth. Like, it really is just like a bunch of people just thinking, like, what would amuse us to put on the radio? And we're interested in the news and what's going on. Yeah. Honestly, it is not more sophisticated than that. I think most people get tired of watching the news and want to think about something else. We do, too. And, and I feel like our audience definitely wants us to do a mix. Right. Um, and, and we want stuff. We want a mix of, like, serious stuff and funny stuff, too. Can we talk a little bit about collaboration? Because we had Zoe on the show, and about 10 times in the course of talking to her, she hit the line of, like, you have to – what it's all about is collaboration. That yeah. That's what we do here, that this shop is just huge on that. And in your speech, you talked about it. And how important is it? Why is it so important? I mean, I have to say, like, like it's possible to do journalism without having great collaborators. It's hard. Like, And, and I think most people – have the experience that I had when I was at NPR, which was 17 years, which is, you know, you have an editor. Generally, most editors are decent. And then you then you, there's a smaller percentage that will make your work better every time. And then a much smaller percentage will make your work worse every time. But here, the way we do it is that, um, you know, at each stage of the process, you're, you're working with somebody else. Like, in addition to having, like, somebody who's your editor, like, as soon as you get a draft together... Um, you know, you play it for like a, a small group of people and they give you notes and then you go off and revise and you play it for a slightly larger group of people. Like basically on each edit, we want to bring in at least one or two people who have never heard the story and don't know anything about it to give to give notes. And um, and there's just like a lot of back and forth, a lot of figuring stuff out, um, a lot of decisions made made together. Is that hard sometimes? I mean, you have to get used to just having tons of feedback and input and criticism, basically, of your work. But you have to be really open and receptive to that, I guess, and not be... It is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Everyone's a critic. No. I mean, that's why you have to they're trust so good. The process. Yeah. You have to trust the process. I don't know. Like, I have to say, like, I, I feel very aware of, like, last week, the, the stories that I was doing. I had two stories in the show, and I was so... I, I don't know why. I felt so defensive with everybody... And so I, I feel like I'm being such a bad boss at this right now, you know. But sometimes you just don't want to. You just don't want more notes. You're just like, okay, really, aren't we done? Isn't it good? And then people are like, mm, more, that's so fix funny because you're the boss. You're uh, the one who's supposed to be giving all the notes, but no, everybody's giving notes to you too. Yeah, it's one of the things I think that makes it hard because I feel like I have to turn off the part of myself where, I'm, where usually I am giving the notes, and like I feel like, oh wait, I have to like really. It's hard. I'm 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 working on doing a better job of it. So right now, but can I say that okay. making it sound awful? Like I have to. It's the thing that makes people want to work here is the quality of the editing, you know, and. Uh, well, just as just so that you you bring that up, um, you talk in the speech. You make a very very impassioned plea for editors, and that that's yeah. the most important. Well, maybe not the most important, but it's equally as important as reporting. Yes. 
editing, I believe, does not get the respect that it deserves. <laughs> editing is crucial in my experience because in my experience, any story that you're trying to make, what, what you want is for the story to be amazing, but what the story wants to be is mediocre or worse. And the entire process of making the story is convincing the story to not be what it wants to be, which is bad. And like turning it slowly from the bad thing it's trying to be, where the sources are inarticulate and you don't know how to structure it and the structure you make doesn't work into this shining, gleaming jewel that you have in your heart. That is editing. How do you become an editor? I thought that's what reporters do. They report, and then they end up turning into editors. Is that is there another way to do it? I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I really don't. I, I feel like I have no expert on that. I don't know. You guys run a journalism school. <laughs> like, you tell me. I have no idea how people come in. Like, like certain people, like, uh, we have a couple people on staff who, who would definitely prefer to be editors, but most of them also want to be on the air and make their own stories. Um, I've always really enjoyed both. I'm I'm way more talented as an editor than I am as a reporter. Like it just comes so much more easily to me. Every everything about editing came easily to me from the beginning. Everything about reporting took years. So we have different definitions of editor. I mean, we both come from a video background, and an editor to us is someone who sits and works the, the puts footage the, when you're done. The production. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, so interesting. Yeah. No, but no, no, you're no. not talking about that. No, I'm talking about editor in the way we do in radio and in print, where the where where the editor is sort of like the person who you report to as a reporter, and then that's the person who like they talk to you about what what tape you're going to get before you go out. You know, they talk to you about the structure of the story before you go out. They talk to you about what did you get, what's any good when you come back with the tape, um, and help you think through the structure of what it's going to be, things like that. They're 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 your collaborator. When you're good at being an editor, is it because you sort of want someone to come to you with something already done so you can then fix it? It's certainly easier, but often that isn't how it works. You know, you're talking to people from the very beginning about about what will the story be? What tape do you want to get? What would make this the very best version of what yeah. it is before you get the tape? So we were just talking about this very situation where before you go out in the field – do you go in the field with an open mind and get what you get and bring it back and sort it out? Or do you go out in the field with a specific, with a very targeted idea in mind? I mean, there are certain stories, for sure, where you don't know what you're going to get. Absolutely. But I think in general, on most reporting that you end up doing, you, you, you can anticipate the shape of what the story should be or could be. And, and, and you go out with an outline in your head of like, I'm going to need this and this and this and this and this for the story to work. Because you're going to have to make the outline eventually, <laughs> you know what I mean? And if you make it after you get the tape, then you can realize like, oh, I should have gotten some, them to respond to this question, which is a key question to the whole thing. So we very much always try to go out with a set of questions and, and like not just a set of questions, but a set of questions that follows the structure of the story. And since we're doing narrative, it's like we know we need these beats of the story when these things happen to the person. We need them to really explain the feelings and, and, and the details of these different moments. Um, but I have to say all the time, you know, we, you know, so the reporter goes out with that and then we find out, okay, that story isn't true or isn't what we thought it was. And then you mm -hmm. learn the story something else. And then hopefully it's something more interesting. You know, so you, so you do go out with an open mind, but you also go out um, with a plan. Like the saying goes, like, feature, uh, what is it, fortune favors the prepared mind. Absolutely. How many stories are in the works right now, like today, in this shop? 
I mean, I could show you in our story list. I mean, everybody's working on two or three things. And the way it goes is that for us to make a show, usually it takes two or three months to get together the stories. I mean, how do you decide what to give more time to? What warrants more time if it's not, if the story isn't coming together? How do you know the difference between something that you need to drop and something that you should pursue? I mean, the time question is a different question. But with, but with all the stories that we're doing, um, we're running at the material, but we understand that half the time or a third of the time it's not going to work. And so, and so we're mindful of that at every step of the process. And often when we pitch each other stories, the thing we say to each other is, like, this person has to deliver and they have to deliver on these points. They have to be able to tell this part of the story in an emotional way or be able to explain this question, which is really the question of the story. And sometimes you can kill at the end of the first interview. A very common thing is that the central character in the story, who the thing happened to, is just not a good talker, is not an emotional talker. And in that case, we think, like, who else can we go to? The spouse, the the sibling, the best friend, who can say, well, when they went through it, here's what they were feeling, and here's what I saw. And they can just talk in a more emotional way. You know, just with the premise that, like, a story is an engine for feelings. And so the kind of interviewee who's the ideal interviewee in a story is somebody who can tell the story recounting and f- almost like refeeling the feelings of the experience at each stage because if you're in the business of of evoking feeling it helps if the central character or somebody in the story has a feeling and can express feeling on tape um, without that it's very hard to do a broadcast story it, like something should be print it doesn't need to be radio or, or documentary so failing that you kill it I was going to ask you, do you ever get all the way through a story and then kill it? So often. There's a story that Aviva did where, where uh, just a couple of months ago, it took weeks and we drafted through two full, two full drafts with different sets of characters each time and probably invested, I don't know how many thousands of dollars in that before we killed it. And ha- is that a black mark against you as a producer? Oh my God, no, 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 no. It's funny because it didn't occur to me that that would be. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then, uh, one of our new producers, Lena, like she went out and reported the hell out of the story, and then we killed it because the interviewees weren't any good. She's like, "Am I in trouble?" I was like, "No, you that that was success. You did your job. You know, like basically, all you can do is play out the cards that exist. Like, like we kill a lot of things, and 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 often, you know, and always when we kill it, like like the point is, if this could be made into a story." the staff of This American Life can do it. <laughs> we are the staff. We will, we will take any, if we can just get one piece of tape with feeling, we can make a story out of that. You just need really one minimum. Do people pitch you ideas, like yeah. the stories all the time? Not all the time, but, but people pitch. People do pitch. I mean, I think there's, people have an idea of what a This American Life story is, and it's not necessarily a real idea. Do you know what I mean? Like they have their sense of what would make a good story, but it doesn't always necessarily translate. I mean, I mean, a good story, what is not a good story is like my friend and I are going on a road trip and we're going to interview a lot of people and see what we find. That is, that is, really <laughs> not, that does not have enough of a question at the heart of it that you're trying to answer. You know, what is a good story is, um, you know, there's somebody in a situation and, and there's a plot to it and the person is a decent talker. And um, and and the plot leads that person to have some thought about the world. That's, it could be as simple as that, you know. 
What is your media diet? I'm going to give you the Sarah Palin question. What do you read and listen to in the morning? Uh, I listen to The Daily every day. I think it's the best podcast out there. And the fact that they're doing narrative as news, I think is really interesting. It's interesting to compare the print versions of the stories to the audio versions, because the audio, they really understand. We're going to tell a story. So they don't start with what happened today. In fact, I've heard Lisa, who produces it, and Michael talk about how when they would first bring in reporters, the reporters would try to get to, here's what happened today. And they'd be like, no, no, don't tell us what happened. We don't understand that yet. Tell us, like, let's start at the beginning. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I find that show to be such an impressive um, achievement and such a like a useful um, way to get to get the news for the day. I'm busy, um, on and on deadline often. So then beyond that, um, lately there are a few podcasts that I listen to. Like I'll I'll get onto like a podcast for a while. Uh, for a while I tried to like listen to all the different like liberal anti-Trump Pod Save America ones. And I felt like I wasn't getting enough information for the amount of minutes it was taking. So I stopped with those. I mean, yeah. And like, yeah. And then I like browse through Twitter, like, and then pull up whatever articles seem interesting. So the politics? It's terrible. As I say this, I feel like it's indefensible. <laughs> it's, it's very, very little. I don't know. It sounds like there was a phase where I was really consciously doing so much right wing media. Um, you were following the, it. Yeah, yeah, going into the last election and coming off the last election. Um, and then I was just like, I don't have time. You know, I just like, I've got stuff i got to write and do and make. Well, can I just ask about the political year coming up? Uh, do you, are you going into it with like specific thoughts in mind of how you want to cover it or, you know? I mean, we've already started our coverage. Yeah, we no, already did an episode that yeah. I feel like was, I feel we're, we're, that was felt great to do. It was really fun to jump in um no i feel like, i feel like it's it's still too early mm-hmm. you know like it's still too early to, to figure out like where are the gaps in the coverage we're just figuring that out it does tie into this whole idea when you talked about how we're in a war right now with facts and non-facts you talked about in the speech that one side is at war and the other side doesn't know it's at war do you think that's still the case yes and how, what do you do about that what do you do about it? No, I mean, what what I does mean, one me, do? Like, about? I'm I'm somebody like making a show, you know, like 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 I'm like I'm not a uh, media magnate, you know, with like hundreds of millions of dollars to throw at inventing like <laughs> programs or something. Like, I think I think if someone were to be tackling it, you know, the product that they'd want to make is a product that would get to the people who um, who like President Trump, but but with facts, create something that's so sparkly. That calls out the 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 non factiness of of the of that media, um, and then thinking about what is that sparkly thing. I mean, you already have like John Oliver doing his thing, and it's what does it get a million, two million people watching? So it's not, and it doesn't reach the audience that right. Likes. It doesn't reach the people that you're talking about. No, I think you'd want something which has the ideals that conservatives have that shares their ideals, but just. Um, you know, is more interested in the facts. That's all. I, 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 you know, I don't know who the messenger for that is. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of it that already exists. You know, you 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 know, like you'd have to you'd have to find somebody who like that's the fire in the belly for sure. Yeah. With an audience. Yeah, somebody who came with with an audience. Yeah. I mean, in a way, 
the This American Life audience is your biggest asset, right? I mean, you guys have the largest listenership of any radio show or any um, podcast, correct? In a weekly basis, yeah. How does the arrival of podcasting, how has that impacted your life? We have more money to spend on stuff. Mm-hmm. It's been incredible. Like the fact that we can, you know, assign somebody to a story and they can spend a year on it. You know, and we have other producers who, who can hire to, like, do the weekly work of getting the show on the air. Like, and we can fly people anywhere. And we can basically, any story we can think of, we have the money to do. And, uh, and that's because of podcasting. And things go in cycles. So do you give thought to the idea that, okay, this is big, we're riding this wave and... I absolutely do. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, like, that's the other thing is, like, there's all this money floating around. And you just think, like, oh, wait... During this moment when it's popular, should we grab in some of that money so we have a security blanket for the future? And it's really hard to know how to navigate that. So back to journalism and our students. I mean, you're always super generous with giving advice and, you know, speaking from your perspective about the media landscape. What are are your words of wisdom for these young audio reporters? I mean, I feel like I, I'm called on to, to do this periodically, and I wish I had different advice each time, but I don't. Like, I think the most important thing is just don't wait. Just whatever it is that you're thinking about doing, just make start making it. Find find somebody who can give you advice. It's not that expensive to do. Get a day job like a normal person. I was a temp secretary for years when I was learning to be a reporter. I'm an excellent secretary. Um, and, uh, you know, just, like, do what you have to do to, to, like, keep yourself alive and just run out the thing you want to make and start to make it. Don't wait. Make the stuff you want to make now. No excuses. Don't wait for the perfect job. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. I want you to be bold. I want you to change things. Although I came before you, I want you to tear up what came before you. I am, no kidding, I really, truly envy you to be starting as journalists today to be starting at this moment when journalism itself is changing so much and to be part of remaking it into whatever it's gonna become, to be reporting on these difficult times and these historic times. Okay, best to you all, my new colleagues. What a terrific and inspiring way to kick off the new season. Thanks so much to Ira Glass. If you've listened before, you know that we'll have new episodes coming up once a month. And if this is your first time, we have a treasure trove of past episodes on our website, which is www.onassignmentpodcast.com, where we have conversations with luminaries and inspiring journalists. NBC's Lester Holt in conversation with The New York Times' Nicole Hannah-Jones, for one, after she won last year's John Chancellor Award. Yeah, that was one of our most popular episodes of all time. Or the directors of last year's mega-hit documentary, RBG, a DuPont Award winner, as well as an Oscar nominee, and many, many more. This season, we're going to revisit some of those as we celebrate the end of a decade of great award winners. So tune in to our next episode or get a head start by listening to our online archive. We talk a lot about what we do at the prizes department on this podcast, but if you want to find out more about the DuPonts or any of our other awards and how you can enter your own reporting, subscribe to our quarterly newsletter. Go to our site, and one more time, that's onassignmentpodcast.com, and you'll find out how to do that. This episode has been brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Sarah Wyman with help from our now past DuPont fellow, Christina Shaman, 
and our DuPont coordinator, Lauren Marigil Dos Santos. Our sound engineer was Ariana Sullivan, and our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Jern. And as we said, visit us one more time at onassignmentpodcast.com to hear more episodes of this podcast. Until next time. <laughs>